The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit RestorationSouthside.org. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and would like to go to children's church, please join the volunteers over by the Kids Zone sign. If this is your child's first time, please go with them so that we can get them checked in. Thank you, Steve. Good morning, my name is Steve Perkins. I'm on staff here, and it's a joy to be with you on this last day of 2023 and the eve of a new year. As we come out of the Christmas season, and I pondered what should we talk about, a psalm that's near and dear to my heart came to mind, partly because in the ebbing tide of 2023 as it rolls into the past and flows away and the incoming tide of 2024 plans or prospects or interests or thinking about all of that what is constant what is constant in the ebb and flow of our own lives and the psalm takes us back to the very root of it all god never changes and the truth of this psalm explores this unmovable rock on which our lives exist 
and gives us our forever purpose. As you can tell and see, the psalm is incredibly intimate and personal. It's a prayer from David's heart to God. And at the same time, it's lofty and deep. It contains thoughts and truths about God that we don't often think about. We remember David, we remember Goliath, we remember Bathsheba, remember some elements of his kingship. We remember that he's the prototype king of which Jesus is the fulfillment and that his kingly line would never fail and that that promise was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We often forget, though, that David was a very talented poet and songwriter. And here, what we see is David filled with the brilliant light of the glory of the one true living God, praise. So we're being invited to a holy place to watch and listen and be drawn in to the prayer of a man of God, to his God. So as we walk together through the psalm, stanza by stanza, as we begin that journey together, let's pray. Pray with me. It is true, O Lord, that you have searched us and known us. And as we come to this psalm, many hearts in many conditions, uh, we pray, I pray, that truths that are high and difficult for our minds to grasp would be made clear and taught by the Holy Spirit. Father, we need the assurance that this psalm brings, and we need the will and the desire to pray what this psalm prays. Would you help me? who needs your help to proclaim and say what is true. And if anything is said that leads away or disclouds the truth, erase it from the minds of the people. Spirit of God, take the reality of who you are as our God, our maker, our creator, our savior, our redeemer, and make them come alive in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Four stanzas in this psalm. And as we go through them, they'll be up on the screen so that you can see them all the time that we're talking about, the very stands that we're, that we're in. David begins with saying, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Before we dive into what this stanza is saying, I want to ask you a question. When you hear this read and when you hear the concepts that are there, even though we haven't talked about them yet in depth, are you tempted to think that this is just a dusty relic in a musty glass case dimly lit in the remote corner of some forgotten museum? That this is one man's prayer. It's not necessarily should be a model for my prayer or your prayer. Is it relevant to us, modern people? We who, with computers and modeling and artificial intelligence, feel confident we can rule the world and accomplish our dreams and goals. Is it relevant to us? What I want you to remind, what I want to remind you of, though, is that David's prayer was written, not just a private prayer that he prayed and no one ever heard or knew, but God the Holy Spirit filled him as he prayed and filled his mind with the reality of the truth of who God is. And it was recorded. The Hebrew inscription at the psalm says, to the choir master, 
This is part of the songbook of the people of Israel in the old time. Millions of God's saints have read and understood and gained comfort and strength from what is here. Does it apply to us? Yes. Just as it did to them. And so as he begins in stanza one, we might really think of this as David's confession of the all-knowing God. See what he says. You've searched me and known me, and you know when I sit down, when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, and my lying down are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. What is he saying? What is David affirming and confessing to God as he prays to the Lord who has searched and known him? Well, first, see that these verbs are all past tense. It's not that God has to work to understand and discover what's going on in David's life and in his heart and in his mind. No, God's knowledge of him is complete. It's constant. It's immediate. It's absolute, it's personal, and it's active. And his knowledge of you and me is the same. See how he describes it. He discerns us in verse 2b. That means God sees all that there is to you, inside and out, absolutely, constantly. He sifts us. That's what searches in the English carries the meaning of being sifted, winnowed. God searches us. He's winnowing us in verse 3a. He knows our minds absolutely from afar, even before words can be formed and come out of our mouths. How many times have you and I carried on a conversation in our heads and the words never made it anywhere because we thought the better of what we were going to say? Or we realized it wasn't going to help the situation and we shut it down. What David is saying is the fountain of words in our brain is automatically and clearly known to God. We are creatures made in his image of all the creatures he's made. We think in language. We speak in language. We write in language. We communicate knowledge in language. God is the God who speaks and he made us as speaking creatures. And here David says clearly, where speech is born in the heart and in the mind, in the emotions and in the will and understanding, there God's knowledge is absolute. So he knows when we want to say something ugly and we catch ourselves and bite our tongues. It's all known to him. He absolutely is the all-knowing God. He is behind and before. David is talking about the fact that God is not bound by time the way we are. Moment by moment, we live our lives. But God is already in the beginning before we were. And he's already at the end where we will end up. He hems us in behind and before. And then these words that are sweet to us. His hand is on us. His knowledge of us is not indifferent. It is conditioned by his love of what he has created and what he will redeem. Here, in David's last words in this phrase, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. That makes us want to say amen, 
You're right. How could we, bound as we are, finite as we are, faulty as we are, completely comprehend God? And yet what he says here is true, and we know it, can know it. Not that we will ever get to the end of knowing God. We never will. But it is knowledge is ours to have. He goes on in stanza two, starting at verse seven, as he deals with this concept of the all-knowing God, he asks a question. He says, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If you know me this way, God, if you hand me in behind and before, that makes me uneasy. I, I thought my mind was a sanctuary where I could live and no one would have to know what's in there. No one can get in there. I know, I know me. I thought it was secret, it was hidden. But David is asking the question, if you know me this way, where can I go? Where can I hide from you? This concept of hiding is something we know very well, don't we? It begins in Genesis 3, when the woman believed the serpent instead of God and gave the fruit to Adam and they broke the covenant that God gave them. And when they understood the wreck and the ruin that it had already was working in their lives, when they felt the guilt and the fear and the shame and they heard the voice of God in the garden, what did they do? They hid. They hid. And mankind has been hiding and we hide ever since. We struggle to deal with the guilt and the shame and the fear that comes along with the knowledge that we have offended him. We have ignored him. We have sinned against him. We have broken his law. We have not done what he's commanded and we have done what he has commanded us not to do. And built into us is that unease at this knowledge of God of us where shall I go, says David? Where shall I flee from your presence? First, he asks questions of distance. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Sheol is the Hebrew idea of the place of the dead, down in the earth. David is saying, if I go as high as I can go, if I go as low as I can go, you are there. You are there. It's not that you got there before me, it's that you were already there. It's that you're already always present in all of your being, everywhere, all the time. Well, wait a bit. What about distance? Distance? No. You are there. What about going east and west? If I take the wings of the morning and go to the othermost parts of the sea, even there, David says, your hand, you shall lead me and your right hand hold me. What about the darkness? Maybe darkness would hide me. No, David said, O Lord, even in the darkness, which is night to me, but light to you, there is no way to escape. But that knowledge does not lead to fear in David. Look at verse 10. What does he say? There your hand shall lead me. Go where you will. Think what you think. Choose what you choose. David is saying, everywhere I go, whatever happens, what seems chaotic in my life, God is leading me. And the second thought is one that really should strike us. 
and make us know how perfect this is. Your right hand, he said, shall hold me. The right hand in the Hebrew was the hand of strength, of power, of accomplishment. Uh, if a king's right hand was holding the scepter, his power was being displayed, his, and his authority held forward. The son of the right hand is the firstborn son, the son of the father's delight. And that right hand holding us should make us think of a couple things. We who have come through the history of redemption much farther than David did, hear these words from Hebrews chapter 1. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Even more fully than David understood when he wrote this, our, our lives, our existence are being held in the right hand of God. And Jesus in John 10 speaks of the fact that David's promise, David's inkling, David's understanding is even greater for us. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me and I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Yes, David, you're right, and we know it even better than you did. Everywhere you are, God's hand is leading you, and his right hand is holding you. The ever-present, everywhere God, in the next stanza, starting at verse 13, David begins to meditate on his beginning. If we were to give a title to these verses, we could call it the life-giving God. Ben just, or was it Mark? Mark in that video said, 30 babies have been born this year. It happens so often that we get glazed, don't we get just kind of ho-hum, roll around, another baby. And David wants to rip that off and open up our hearts to the wonder of the life-giving God. Look what he says. And before we look at that, I want to use a metaphor maybe to help us understand it. Let's say, just for the sake of imagination, that you go home today and all of a sudden these boxes start arriving at your place, of wherever you live. Some large and very heavy, some smaller, Boxes of all different sizes, and you begin to open them up. And when you open them up, you see metal parts. You see cast things. You see very heavy things. And you see machined things, like bearing surfaces and things like that. You, you begin to see very odd-shaped round things and very other arms and, and small little boxes with little plastic things and wires coming out of them. And you see belts and plastic and other things. And then as you open the last box, there's a message. This is an exact replica of the engine in your car. You have one week to put it together. I don't know about you, as some of us may know a great deal about car engines, but that's impossible. And yet, you're going to leave the service and go out without a second thought and turn the key in your car 
and start it up and drive off. It's such a ubiquitous part of our lives, we don't even think about it, and yet we know so little. And if an engine is complicated, it is. How much more complex are you and I? And that's what David brings before our vision. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. God's weaving together of a human being in his mother's womb, her mother's womb, is an incredible process, one we barely grasp and understand. The best doctors and obstetricians, all of the medical science that we know today, cannot even begin to touch the mystery and the complexity of the forming, the knitting together, the weaving into a living, breathing human being. And yet God does it all the time. You knit my, my body together in my inward parts and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Notice how David is going. David began in the first stanza to say, this knowledge is high, I can't attain to it. And then he begins to hint that God's everywhere presence is a boon, a confidence to him, a blessing to him. And now he says plainly, I praise you. I lift up my soul in adoration and praise to the God who knit me together in my mother's womb. Is that true of you? The knitting together in the womb part is... Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. His praise continues as he thinks about God's excellent work. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. The depths of the earth here is a metaphor for the womb, the darkness and secrecy of the womb. I was being woven together in secret, but your eyes saw. Your, saw, your eyes saw all the stuff you made me out of. All the metals and liquids and solids and fluids and molecules and proteins and everything that goes together into a living human body with the last great exclamation point. You're alive. Vast collection of complex systems, but you live and you're conscious and you speak and act and do and choose and communicate these God, David said, are your wonderful works, and I praise you for them. Not only that, he ends the, this stanza by saying, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. In other words, David is saying, God was thinking about you before you were. God was planning for you before he created you. God laid out the map of your life and put it in his book. And David praises God. My life is not chaotic, given to chance. I may not know what's coming, but God's hand leads me. His right hand holds me. And then we come to the last stanza of this beautiful psalm. 17 and 18 kind of sum up David's whole movement of heart to this point. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. 
I awake, and I am still with you. Even pondering God wears us out, and we must sleep and rest. But when we awake, we discover God never stopped thinking. His thoughts were vast, more than the sand. Wait a minute. That sounds like poetic hyperbole, doesn't it? Think of all the sand in the deserts of Sahara or the Namibian desert. Think of all the sands on the shore of your favorite beach. Could you count them? Absolutely impossible. And yet David is saying, God's thoughts toward you and toward me are as vast in number as that. Is he just exaggerating? No. He's telling you the truth about God and his thoughts of you. Hold up your hands. You're a Presbyterian. It feels uneasy, I know. <laughs> Hold up your hands. What happened when, that, when you did that? You can put them down now. Your brain, your ears, heard the sound of my voice. Your brain processed the meaning of those words, translated them in millions of a second, and gave impulses and commands through the nerves and tendons and muscles of your arm, and you raised them, and your eyes saw that you had done the job. All of that complexity in millions of a second, and that's just one tiny little system of all that you're made up of. One, I want you to raise your hands one more time to see, so you can see this is not a joke. Imagine you have a sesame seed, you know, the kind on hamburger buns, or that's in really good ramen. Hold it up, up there, put it up up there. Imagine now, you're looking at a section of the sky close to the base of the Big Dipper, and you don't see anything there. A piece of the sky that's only covered by the depth and width of that sesame seed between your fingers. In 1995, after the Hubble telescope had been repaired by the Endeavour and the astronauts in the space shuttle, the director of the, space, of the Hubble program put forth a proposition that he knew might cost him his job because Hubble time was very precious. And so what he said is, I'm going to aim the Hubble at this empty part of the sky. And I'm going to keep it there for a hundred hours. And I'm going to take photographs of what's there. And if nothing's there and I lose my job, so be it. But I'm going to do it anyway. And he did it. And then December of that year, the Hubble carried out this mission. And in this empty piece of the sky, this is what appeared. The little blotches of light that you see there are galaxies with millions and billions of stars in them. In this tiny little piece of sky, astronomers can count over 30,000 galaxies. This is real. We've seen it. Listen to Psalm 147 and verse 4. God determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Every star in every galaxy that you see there is directed and named by God. Is it any stretch that he has been thinking of you? With so many thoughts, no limits in time or knowledge, but his thoughts are more toward you than the sand of the sea.
David isn't kidding. He's not using poetic license. He's telling us how important we are to God. As David then sums up and he makes a, a very abrupt shift in verse 19. Verse 19 says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They, the wicked, speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. What's going on here? It's really, really critical that we understand this. And there's no confusion in our minds. We live in a world in which diametrically opposite stories are being told. The story of this book, the truth is, in the beginning, God. God created the heavens and the earth. The stories that swirl around us and we hear and read and, and even study in school begin like this. In the beginning, no God. If I were to tell you a story, and I started it this way, um, once upon a time, what would you think I was going to tell you? A fairy tale, probably something, right? Maybe useful, maybe instructional, but not true. The stories that swirl around us begin that way. Once upon a time, there is no God. Therefore, I will study science as if it exists on its own, self-existent. I will study the systems of biology or geology or astronomy, and I will assume there is no God, and I will weave vast theories about how things begin, and then I will preach that as truth, and then I will ridicule people who don't believe it. That, says David, is wickedness. It's not just intellectual curiosity. The wicked are enemies of God. They begin with God. They resent God. They remove God. And that language, that worldview surrounds us. We breathe it in every day. These people, says David, speak evil of God. They defame him. They take his name in vain. They ridicule him. They make his name into curse words and use his name like that in language all the time. And he's saying, do not I hate them who are your enemies, O Lord. What David is saying is, this isn't a personal vendetta. This isn't me not liking you or someone else because they are different than me. It's not that at all. It is, there is new, no neutrality. You must be on one side or the other. Either you are the enemy of God and resent him and resist him, or you are not. There's no middle ground. There's nowhere to live and coexist, as the bumper sticker says that we see all the time. And this language, which is so strong to our modern ears, is the same thing that the disciples saw of Jesus when he cleansed the temple. You remember, he took whips and cords and drove out the money lenders in the temple. And he said, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And the disciples remembered later of Jesus that it was said of him, the zeal for your house has consumed me from Zechariah. David is consumed with love and zeal for the name and the reputation of God and those who tear it down and defame it and destroy it and work against it and even preach and teach 
and write vast theories of no God and how the world can be explained are his enemies. It's tough for us, isn't it? We've come very casually to believe there's such a thing as my truth and your truth. They don't have to be the same. But in reality, what David is saying is there's truth and then there's error. There's light and darkness. There is no fellowship between light and darkness. We need a little of that backbone and that clarity in my thinking. But now David comes finally to the end of the prayer. And if you're very astute, you'll notice that he's picked up the same words that he used in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And now what does David say? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What's happened? David, in contemplating God in all of his all-knowing and being all-present and life-giving and holy love, David now wants God to search him and know him. Because David senses the greatest danger for him and for you and for me is not out there, but it's in here. It's in us believing and telling that same story to us, like the fool in Psalm 14.1, who says to himself in his heart, there is no God. Every wicked deed, every disobedience, everything that we do comes from that root. It's for, in a moment, and for whatever reason, and whatever temptation, we think and say, maybe not intent, intentionally, but we say, in this moment, for this thing, there is no God. I will decide. I will choose. I will do this or not do this. It is the root of all wickedness. And David is saying, Lord, search me, know me. I don't want that to be in me. I don't want that to upend me. I don't want that to destroy me. Make me to know it, God, and lead me in the way everlasting. The psalm leaves us with a choice. Whoever you are today, whatever you think and know about God, can you, would you say that prayer? Maybe you think that's, nah, that's, that's a commitment that's too too strong. That's a road too far. I want this uneasy relationship where I'm in charge and, and God's there if I need him. I want to sort of be the master of my time and my choices and my fate. I want to be able to meet my own needs when I can. Search me. Know me. Try my heart. See if there are any grievous ways in me that echo that same godless song. If you choose not to pray this prayer, what you're turning your back on is this reality about God. First, he is light. First John chapter 1, verse 5, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. To turn away from this prayer is to choose darkness. God is love, John says in 1 John 4, 8. And if you've not known love, you've not known God. 
To turn your back on this prayer is to say, mm -mm, I'll withhold my love. I'll love who I want, when I want, how I want. And it's to end up in hate, hating yourself, hating others. God is life, John 17 and verse 3. Jesus prays in his prayer, This is life eternal, O God, that they would know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To turn your back on this prayer is to die. But as 2024 comes and rolls in, what I want you to pray is this prayer all the time. I want you to pray it every day. I want you to pray it when you're being tempted. I want you to pray it every day and all the way through your life because what does David ask for? God, lead me in the way everlasting. I don't want to miss that. What do we do in our social media stuff? We use little acronyms to make things, right? What does FOMO stand for? Fear of missing out. What I want to plant in you is a fear of missing out on this, on knowing the God who is light and love and life. Be, yeah, be very afraid of that and turn from that to know the life everlasting through Jesus Christ and God Almighty. All right, on the end here. Not quite four years ago, God took my wife home to be with him. And in the beginning, when we were fighting metastatic breast cancer and she started chemotherapy, this was the Bible that she often read from and studied. And the chemotherapy affected her vision. My kids remember this. Um, where she could not read the fine print in this Bible anymore. We got her several others with bigger prints so she could read them. But until I studied this passage from this Bible, I didn't realize that she had written this in here. And I want to end with this prayer that she makes. Psalm 139 is my birthday psalm. I'm created by God and known by him. He comprehends me and all of my complexities. I want him to dwell in me and fill me with his spirit. Amen. Would you pray with me? Knowledge of you like this, O oh God, is too high. We can't attain it. And yet, it is here so that we may know it is true, that we may grow in understanding of who you are and faithful prayer and praise. It is the root of our love to you. And I pray in Jesus' name that you would make it exceedingly precious and permanent in our minds and hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. And faithful prayer and praise. It is the root of our love to you. And I pray in Jesus' name that you would make it exceedingly precious and permanent in our minds and hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.